0: If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you know what that means? If God accepts you because you are good, then the cross of Jesus Christ is useless. Adrian Ward wrote an article titled, Scientists probe human nature and discover we are good after all. The subtitle says, Recent studies find our first impulses are selfless. The article makes no definitive statement of whether uh, human beings are naturally good or not, but the nuance of the article is that human beings are good. But what does that imply about the cross? We have some country music fans here. Uh, You probably heard of Luke Bryan. And I want you to think about a song that he sings. This song has sold over 309,000 copies in the States alone. It reached uh, number one on the U.S. Billboard country airplay chart in March. It peaked at number four on hot country songs in April. Someone said that this song could be just what we needed, a song that carries a welcome message, which could lead to a healing of hearts and minds. Wow, this is quite a song. What's the song? The title is, Most People Are Good. I believe most people are good and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. The Apostles' Creed begins the same way. Folks, Jesus said no one is good except God alone. What does this song imply about the cross? Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, said this. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Folks, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Sin is not learned. It is our heartbeat. Few people would ever say that the human heart is perfect. But many say it is good, which leaves little room, if any room, For the power and profoundness of the cross. For us Christians, the cross is the power of God. We boast not in our goodness, but in the powerful cross. For the cross is the means by which we put sin to death in our lives. The message of Galatians must be heard today. Because our self-justification, but also because countless experts... And entertainers tell us we're good, we're heroes, we're superstars, and we should just follow our heart. That is not good news, because if we follow our heart, we follow it straight to hell. If we believe the American creed that human beings are essentially good, we do not understand the law, and we spurn the message of the cross. If righteousness were through the law or through human moral effort, then Christ's life, death, and resurrection are all meaningless. The American creed of self-justification and leaving people is leaving people without true grace and peace and deliverance. The doctrine of self-help and self-actualization is enslaving people. If people are content... With their own goodness, what good will the goodness of Christ be for them? Self-regard and self-esteem are robbing people of true freedom. The good news of Galatians is what the world needs to hear. That despite our radically corrupt condition, true grace, peace, and deliverance are given in the gospel. So here's my point for today as I kick off this series. True grace, peace, and deliverance come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Not a gospel of man's law keeping, not a gospel of man's inherent goodness, not a gospel of man's moral effort. The gospel is great news of sovereign and supernatural and saving grace, which brings true grace, peace, and deliverance. That's what Galatians is about. What's the background of Galatians? Galatia was a region in modern-day Turkey, likely southern Galatia, where Paul preached and planted churches in the first century. He likely wrote the book around A.D. 40 because he didn't mention the Jerusalem Council of A.D. 48. Um, which ruled that Gentiles need not be circumcised, a ruling which would have strengthened his argument in this letter. So about 48 A.D. Circumcision was a huge point of controversy in the church in Paul's day. Some attached salvific significance to circumcision and other Jewish ceremonial laws. False teachers in the church were discrediting Paul and pompously teaching their version of the gospel. Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Their false gospel undermined the true gospel and was corrupting Galatian local churches. It was a serious situation which necessitated a strong gospel response from Paul. Justification by faith alone is at the heart of Galatians. Paul was adamant that salvation is not by works of the law, but by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and that the gospel brings spiritual freedom and godly living. Galatians is also about the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit apart from the law, which is perhaps the greatest theme of the book. As Christians struggling against our worldly desires, we need a powerful and effectual gospel. And Galatians is exactly that. Paul gave us a treasure in Galatians. Who was Paul? Well, more... um, biography will come later in the series, but in verse 1, Paul began with these simple words, Paul, an apostle. The majority of times that the word apostle is used in the New Testament refers to one of the 12 sent out to preach. Apostleship is the highest ranking in the church and held by a select few, and Paul was among the select few. As were the other 12 apostles, Paul was uniquely chosen and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and to preach the gospel. Where did Paul get his apostolic authority? Well, again, keep in mind that Paul was defending his apostolic authority against the attacks of the false teachers in Galatia, in the church. He established his apostolic authority, not to brag in any way, but to but to substantiate the gospel that he preached. It was about the gospel. The false teachers in Galatian churches, local churches, had no apostolic authority. The apostle Paul did. And because he did, Paul's gospel was the true and unadulterated gospel. But where did his apostolic authority come from? Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Number one, Paul's apostolic authority was not from men. The source of Paul's authority was not any human council or mission organization or denomination. Number two, Paul's apostolic authority was not through men. The means of Paul's authority was not human either. The NASB translates verse 1 Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man. There was no intermediary between Christ and Paul. Number three, Paul's apostolic authority was through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Paul was uniquely chosen and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. Authority went straight from Christ to Paul. Acts 9.15 confirms that Jesus himself said Paul was... A chosen instrument of his. In Acts 20 verse 24, Paul said that he received his ministry from the Lord Jesus. Paul's authority was apostolic authority because it came to him through Jesus Christ. Number four. Paul's apostolic authority was through God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God the Father also gave Paul apostolic authority. The same role and authority given to Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and the rest of the twelve. I was ordained by a bunch of elders. Paul was ordained by Jesus Christ the Lord. Big difference. I am not an apostle. Paul is, and the other apostles were unique for that time. Why did Paul mention that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Why would he put that there? Well, I think to establish gospel truth right from the beginning of the letter. I'm coming at it hard with gospel. I think that's what Paul was doing there. And he was adding it to substantiate his authority even more. The crucified and risen Lord and the God who raised him from the dead made him an apostle. That's saying something. That's big. Something that the false teachers could not say at all. Where did Paul get his apostolic authority? God. God. The false teachers were up against God's authority. So then, understand that Paul's words carry the authority of Jesus Christ the Lord and God the Father. In other words, Paul's words are Jesus' words And every letter of Galatians is read. Okay. To whom was Galatians written? Verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul wrote the letter, but the brothers with him affirmed it. He wrote to the local churches in Galatia. The letter was meant for circulation. And it's amazing, but this little book is still relevant as it informs our local church practices right here in Mannheim in 2018. Now, Verses 3 through 5 continues Paul's greeting, Uh, but you'll notice that they contain wonderful and deep and amazing doctrine. His greeting is an amazing theological statement. He didn't even get into the main content of the book yet. And he is giving us incredible things to think about. Paul was intent on clarifying the gospel from the very beginning. So as we start to unpack this book, you should think about this question. Where does true grace, peace, and deliverance originate? Where does true grace, peace, and deliverance originate? Most of Paul's letters begin just like verse 3. Grace to you and peace From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That statement helps you understand the rest of the book. Grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True grace and peace are not worked for and earned. They are given and received. Paul was greeting them with God's grace. To you. That's dative. Doesn't mean much to many of you, but so let me explain it. One source notes this. The dative refers to the person or thing to which something is given or for whom something is done. Something is given or for whom something is done. The gospel was achieved for the Galatians and God's undeserved kindness and favor in the gospel was given to them as a gift. It was accomplished for them. The little word from points to the source of the grace and peace. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no true peace without divine, supernatural, saving grace given in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. For peace of conscience can never be had unless sin be first forgiven. But sin is not forgiven for the fulfilling of the law. For no man is able to satisfy the law. The law doth rather show sin, accuse and terrify the conscience, declare the wrath of God and drive to desperation, Much less is sin taken away by the works and inventions of men, but sin is rather increased by works. So there is no means to take away sin, but grace alone. Therefore, Paul, in all the greetings of his epistles, setting grace and peace against sin and an evil conscience. End of quote. Now, do you understand what Dr. Luther was getting at? Doing works of the law does not bring forgiveness, because no man can do the law. And I love how Dr. Luther put it, that the law doth rather show sin, accuse and terrify the conscience, declare the wrath of God, and drive to desperation. See, when we trust in our own ability to do good, we find that our works only increase our sin. If God accepts us, and if God loves us, and if God blesses us because we are good people doing a good job at obeying His good law, then verse 3 is unnecessary and wrong. Verse 3 assumes the Galatians had a desperate need of grace and peace, a need The the entire letter of Galatians must be interpreted in light of God's free choice to give His favor through Christ. True grace and peace, they're sovereignly given. They're sovereignly given in the gospel of Christ and therefore received by faith alone. Not works of the law. Not works of the law. Not works of the law. Of the law, so let me ask this: Where does true deliverance originate? Two quick stories. You might know the name Chris Gardner. Uh, Will Smith's blockbuster, *The Pursuit of Happiness*, was about Chris Gardner's life. Based on that, Gardner grew up in poverty. He was a homeless father, striving to care for his little boy, and uh, became. He was also striving to become a stockbroker with uh, Dean Witter Reynolds in the 1980s. He was sleeping in subway stations and church shelters with his son while fighting for success. And through determination and through hard work, Gardner overcame the odds, eventually opened his own investment firm, and he was successful. And when he was a kid, he was was watching a basketball game on TV, and the announcer remarked about a player making a million dollars, and he said under his breath, man, a million dollars, And his mom overheard him, and so his mom responded, Son, if you want to, one day you can make a million dollars. And Garter later in his life remarked about that day, quote, with that one sentence, she convinced me that in spite of where I came from, I could attain whatever goals I set for myself. That one day I too could be world class at something, end of quote. Second story. Jesus Garcia was a railroad brakeman. He worked on a train that ran from Nacozari, Sonora, and Douglas, Arizona. On November 7, 1907, Garcia was resting in town, and all of a sudden, he noticed that some hay on the roof of a, of a rail car was burning, and that car happened to be filled with dynamite. And so here, the sparks from the locomotive's failing firebox had left from the, the smokestack, Uh, onto the rail car roof, with great courage and intuition, Garcia took control and drove the train full steam backwards away from the town and after traveling over three and a half miles, the train exploded, killing Garcia and saving the people of the mining town. One source said the blast was felt ten miles from the scene. Now both stories are incredible. Incredible. But which story better represents the gospel? In the first story, self-determination and hard work overcame the odds, but in the second story, the heroism and self-sacrifice of one brought rescue for many. Inside of all of us is the inclination to try to deliver ourselves through self-determination and hard work. But the gospel of Jesus Christ eradicates all confidence in help, self-help and do-it-yourself deliverance. The gospel says that works of the law are completely ineffective to save. They do nothing for you. The gospel says we need to be saved. And that there is a Savior who gave himself for our rescue, who gave himself for our freedom. Chris Gardner, he may be a great illustration for the American dream, but Jesus Garcia is a better picture of the gospel where one dies for the deliverance of many. Listen to verse 4, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That verse is hugely doctrinal and hugely significant. Number one, Jesus Christ gave himself. In other words, he died. There was no bull, there was no goat. He voluntarily and selflessly offered His own life as the atoning sacrifice. It was not taken. He gave it. He didn't give His time. He didn't give His money. He didn't give His support. He gave Himself. He was the offering. True grace, peace, and deliverance come through the One who gave Himself as a sacrifice. Number two, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Why did Jesus die? Because his people had committed flagrant acts of rebellion against God which deserved death. God's people sinned so violently and so egregiously that the payment had to be the life of God's only beloved son. For whose sins did Christ die? Paul was clear. What did he say? Our sins. Our sins. Who is he talking to? It's meaning his sins and the Galatians' sins and all Christians from all nations. The death of Christ was a particular atonement. Beloved brothers and sisters, if we are good-natured people, Jesus gave his life for nothing. A waste if we are even mostly good-natured people and the little sin we have really isn't that bad, then the death of Christ was a travesty of justice because the price paid would have been so much greater than the offense committed, which would call the justice of God into question. If salvation is by our works of the law, the gospel crumbles into nothing. You have nothing. If God accepts us on the basis of our well-intentioned and mostly consistent obedience to His law, then Christ's act of giving Himself for our sins was entirely unnecessary, excessive, and ultimately worthless. If we believe that we are essentially good, we do not understand the law, and we burn the message of the cross. What makes verse 4 so astonishing is the gravity and extent and dreadfulness of our sin against God and the infinite value of the life of Christ the life of God's Son is infinitely valuable, and if it was given for sin, the sin must have been infinitely horrible. Our sin was so horrific that only the life of God's beloved Son was sufficient payment for it. And Dr. Martin Luther was spot on once again. He said, "...with such gunshot and artillery must all other notions be destroyed, all doctrine of merit, works and superstitious ceremonies. For if our sins may be taken away by our own works, merit and satisfaction, what needed the Son of God to be given for them? But seeing He was given for them, it followeth that we cannot put them away ourselves, Again, by this sentence, it is declared that our sins are so great, so infinite and invincible that it is impossible for the whole world to satisfy for one of them. Let us learn here of Paul to fully and truly believe that Christ was given not for feigned sins, nor for small, but for great and huge sins, not for few, but for many, not for conquered sins, for no man can overcome the smallest sin to put it away, but for invincible sins. Invincible sins. Our sins were so big and so unbeatable that their defeat required the death of the big and unbeatable Christ. If works of the law of human goodness or human effort contribute in any way to redemption, then the cross of Christ was a big mistake. His death was no mistake. He died Because we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. But God wanted to redeem us. And so he did through his son, through the slaughter of his perfect son. Number three, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. To deliver us from the present evil age. This gives us hope and strength in our battle against sin. When our sin and misery seem so unbeatable, so relenting, so I cannot conquer this at all. I'm making no progress. God, where are you in this? This is beyond me. I don't even know what I'm doing This truth brings in the wrecking ball of God's grace. The wrecking ball of God's grace. Paul wrote, who gave himself for our sins. And then he added the little conjunction, hopos. Oh, don't you love words like hopos? Whatever follows hopos explains the purpose for which Christ gave his life. What did the death of Jesus achieve? Deliverance. Rescue. Liberation. Jesus didn't die to make deliverance possible. He died to actually deliver. Jesus actually rescued all of God's chosen people from the present evil age. The rescue is done. What did Paul mean by present evil age? Well, I take him to mean enslavement to the godlessness of this world. Do you know what being delivered from the present evil age means for you believers? It means you are no longer of this world. You are no longer enslaved. You are no longer ruled by sin. You are truly free in Christ to do what God wants you to do. That sin that you just can't seem to conquer, Christ died for it and has set you free from its dominion. You are no patsy. Your continued struggle against it is evidence that Christ is working in you to continue to deliver you from it. If you're not fighting, you're probably dead in sin. But if there is fight in you, do you know what that is? It's Christ graciously delivering you. He's working for you. We are delivered and yet we are still being delivered. And I like how William uh, Hendrickson, this great theologian, said it. He wrote this. The rescue from this present world dominated by evil, though not complete until the last trumpet has sounded, is progressive in character. It is being accomplished whenever a sinner is brought out of the darkness into the light. And then he adds something that you gotta gotta catch here. And whenever a saint gains a victory in his struggle against sin. When you resist and fight sin and when you prevail, it is Christ delivering you. His deliverance is cause for unceasing gratitude and celebration of God's provision of grace. You belong to Christ, dear ones. And He supplies through His Spirit the strength to overcome the sins that you're struggling with right now. When you face a temptation to sin in some way, fill in the blank, whatever you're dealing with right now, you must remember that Christ died to deliver you from that sin. It must not master you because the Lord of glory died for it to be your master. In that moment of temptation, as you believe that you've already been delivered by Christ, You trust that Jesus will also deliver you from the sin you haven't yet committed. You are delivered and you are being delivered by the power of the Spirit supplied you through faith. Jesus, some of you need to hear this loud and clear. Jesus didn't die so you could continue to indulge in your sin. He rescued you from sin. Now, in union with Christ, every time you say no to sin, I am not going down that road like I have before. I will not. I will fight. I will fight. I will fight. It is your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, graciously rescuing you from the present evil age. Every time you sin, you are actually acting inconsistently with who you are in Christ. That you are free in Him and the law and your guilty conscience is reminding you over and over again very kindly and very graciously of your unceasing need for your faithful, Jesus, faithful Savior Jesus Christ to deliver you, to graciously continue to deliver you from your sin, to rescue you continually every day, keeping you by His grace. Paul reminded the Galatians that they were rescued by Christ, not their works of the law, I just want to shout that one. Not by works of the law. You're not going to do good on this and win. It's Christ alone. This is the bedrock of our church. This is everything to us. The gospel was the key, is the key to godly living. Not their self-confidence or self-determination. I'll just go ahead and try harder this week. If sin is beating you down and draining you of peace and joy, cheer up, dear saints. As my mentor Bob Hopper used to say, he's he's with Jesus now. He used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. How is that helpful? And then, and then then he would come back and he would He would just say right after that, but the gospel is better than you know. Cheer up and get yourself back to the gospel. Christ gave himself for your sins so that you would be free from the present evil age, free to love God, free to serve God. And now that you're rescued, trust Christ to continue to rescue you from your ongoing battle with sin. Trust him to do what he said. Do not lose heart, do not fret, do not grow anxious. The crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ is working in you, dear saints, through faith to continue to deliver you and to conform you into his likeness. This is wonderful news. He is not done with you yet, he is not done with me yet, but one day his work will be finished. He will do what he says he will do. Number four, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That right there is such rich theology. That's so deep. And it's only Paul's salutation. He's not even into the body of the work yet. Christ's death was a voluntary act of obedience to God the Father's will. Don't miss that. Christ died to please his Father. This is the covenant of redemption. We've learned about this. God the Father had an eternal sovereign plan to redeem his chosen people. The Father planned to send the Son to rescue and redeem through a cross. The Father also promised his Son a great reward upon completion of his plan. The Son agreed, the Holy Spirit agreed. So when Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to accomplish redemption for us, it was Christ obeying the eternal will and purpose and plan of God the Father in order to please his Father. It was God's eternal and decretive will that Christ die and and deliver us from the present evil age. The cross is evidence of God's sovereign and eternal love for you, saints. The cross is evidence of, This makes a difference every day when we wake up and we face the battle of sin. It makes a difference. This is practical theology to help you and to build you up and to encourage you. So make the connection. The death of Christ did not happen because you are good or savable or even desirable in any way. John Calvin got it right. He said Christ suffered for us not because we were worthy or because anything done by us moved him to the act but because such was the purpose of God. Such was the purpose of God. You didn't do anything Isaiah 53 verse 10 says it loud and clear, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God crushed his only begotten son so that you would no longer be enslaved to and ruined by your sin. Saints, Christ was crushed so that you could live free and happy. Calvin added, he likewise declares the design of our redemption to be that Christ, by his death, might purchase us to be his own property. This takes place when we are separated from the world. For so long as we are of the world, we do not belong to Christ. Are you of the world? Do you love the world and the things of this world so much? If you do... The love of the Father is not in you, and you do not belong to Christ. You must repent and believe in Christ right now. God is being gracious to you. Listen to him. But dear saints, dear believers, dear beloved brothers and sisters, you belong to Christ. His death has secured your final and your complete deliverance, and yet He is still working in you to deliver you every day. You have fight in you because the Spirit is at work in you. You are delivered, and yet you are still being delivered by sovereign grace. So in all of this, where does all the glory go? (laughs) None of it goes to you or me zilch, nothing, you contributing nothing, but your, I'm awful, that's what you gave. I'm terrible. All the glory goes to God, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Our God and Father deserves all the glory, and he deserves it yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever, forever. Why? Because He decreed redemption, accomplished redemption through His Son, and applied redemption to His elect by His Spirit. We have done absolutely nothing. Salvation from beginning to end is by sovereign grace alone. The world is slaving away for grace, but you, dear saints, have grace given you through faith. The world is slaving away for peace, but you, dear saints, have peace given you through faith. The world is slaving away for deliverance, but you, dear saints, have deliverance given you through faith, through faith. There's a a better song to sing than most people are good. And it goes like this. Your pardon is a gift of love. Your grace alone must save us. Our works will not remove our guilt. The strictest life would fail us. Let none in deeds or merits boast, but let us own the Holy Ghost. For He alone can change us only by grace, by grace alone.